You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. We've been making cheese in Wisconsin since before we were even a state, which may be one reason why we win so many awards for it. It's what happens when a whole state dreams in cheese. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Hello, you're listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview an extraordinary woman who has inspired me with their vision and their mission and their work and their life. And today, I have someone I've admired for a long time, Lindsay Hoops from Hoops Family Vineyard. Welcome, Lindsay. So happy to have you on. Thank you so much. The feeling is mutual. I have admired you for quite a long time as well. <laughs> I, I'd love to start our conversation in your familial past, because it seems like your grandmother was a tremendous inspiration to you. And I always like starting like deep up the family tree, particularly since you're part of a multi-generational business right now. So what can you tell me about your grandma? Wow. Well, she was an incredible trailblazer. She obviously, or maybe not so obvious to everyone else, was not necessarily connected to our business as we look at it today. But she certainly was, I would consider, my most significant role model in bucking traditions in a positive way. I mean, she was certainly an entrepreneur in her own right. And, you know, she was never satisfied with staying in one place and not seeing the world, adventuring with her credentials to different environments. And so she took a position in a very underserviced area in southeastern Arizona to educate the Native American population from the reservations down there, which is how she found her way to my grandfather. And, you know, she got divorced, actually, which, of course, in a small town and Mormon community was perceived as extraordinarily um, unfit and unsuitable for that time and certainly for women. And she ended up moving back to California as a single mother and rearing my father always with the sort of, I think, mantra of you get to create your own destiny. Don't let anyone tell you what you need to do. And you are responsible for educating yourself and for finding what makes you happy. And she always pursued that. And she always took every opportunity to travel to a new country. I mean, I remember as a child, she literally um, would travel to countries the minute they opened um, up to Western travel. So she was one of the first visitors to China, one of the first visitors to India. And nothing in her background necessarily indicated that she would she would have that wanderlust. But I think she was always just on this constant hunt for learning about people, cultures, food, and using her masters to get her educational opportunities in those places. So she became a teacher in Venezuela. Um, sort of before the Peace Corps existed, she's, you know, kind of took it on herself to create 
her own little Peace Corps mission, if you will, and educate people in different communities. So I thought that was really fascinating. I read that you've been to 70 countries and you speak like three languages, four languages? Five. Five. Okay. So Mandarin, Catalan, Spanish, English. And then I'm working on Portuguese. I should say that it's not exactly, I'm, I'm definitely not fluent. But... <laughs> okay. You're, you're forgiven. But tell me, like Mandarin, like just you have a facility for languages, obviously, but was there a reason for the focus on Spanish or Mandarin? I was asked that very question in my college interview because I was applying to the the School of Language and Linguistics at Georgetown, which doesn't exist anymore. And my passion was always to find a way to get into some form of international something. Uh, I wanted to be a spy, but I ended up, you know, parlaying it into something else. How how close did you get to being a spy? Not well, not very close. Um, I did interview with the CIA, and they told me I was too memorable, which. I guess is now a compliment. I was devastated at the time because that's, you know, I had these visions of who knows, James Bond and whatnot, but I, I I didn't make it, but I ended up figuring out where I could use my outspoken public speaking skills and still work on sort of finding justice. So that was, that was always kind of a central core, but with respect to um, kind of why I ended up learning languages I remember somebody asked me in the college counseling area, like, why would you major in a foreign language? You know, why wouldn't you major in all the other courses that you're good at, finance, something more useful, right? And I remember looking at him and saying, but learning languages opens up so many doors. If I'm smart, I can do all of those things. And if I speak three languages, I can do all of those things in three languages. And it opens up the ability to work in other countries to, you know, I've learned more about cultures. I remember learning um, specifically about Chinese grammar and time is not linear in Chinese. And so there is no past tense the way that we think about it in European languages and and Romance languages. And once I kind of understood a lot of those concepts about that, I understood why people are often misunderstood when they're speaking English. I understood also why business dealings took place the way that they did. So these were keys that through language I was able to unlock about a culture. And I found that really interesting. Even the words that cultures attribute to food, you know, having multiple different words for food sources that are so important, it really helps you understand where cultures value different things. And I think that, you know, you can learn how to negotiate, you can learn certain things better outside of a classroom, but language was kind of the, the key to opening up the world to me. I don't know if it was your first job, but you ended up getting a law degree and you um, you are an assistant DA to a very famous person. Um, I just want to know all about that job and, uh, and what that was like. When I was declined the opportunity to be a spy, I sort of hearkened back to really, I had a lifelong passion for criminal law. I remember on Take Your Daughter to Work Day, everyone wanted to go with my mother because she was 
a designer and she made clothes and she made everything beautiful and she had fabrics and all these amazing things at her office. And I wanted to go with my friend's mother, who it turns out was a DA. I didn't know that at the time. And I wanted to go in to watch her in court and advocating for people who didn't have a voice. And at five years old, I didn't articulate it that way. But as I've looked back on those memories, I realized what was really inspiring to me about that. Um, I went to my law school counselor again in uh, when I was looking for jobs in law school. And I was advised that there was no way I would ever get a job as a district attorney in San Francisco because it was very competitive. And, you know, essentially they did not hire people right out, out of law school. They wanted you to sort of do a tour of duty somewhere else, get trained and come in with significantly more experience. So I did not go through the HR process. I said, I'm going to apply directly to Kamala Harris and I'm going to tell her how passionate I am about this job. I just love that. I'm going to tell Kamala that I'm going to, I really want this job. I don't really care what anyone says that I can't do it, which that, that does, does seem to be a late motif that you just don't take no for an answer. Right. I mean, it's worth a good old college try, right? I mean, you, you create your destiny if you don't try because you won't get it. So we all know that. And I definitely felt that she was the one that could probably read my passion and hopefully shared that and wanted that kind of passion and potentially audacity um, given the role on her team. So she actually hired me, but they hired me for the wrong position initially. And they thought that I was much further along in law school than I actually was. This was my first year in law school and I was really just looking for an internship. But I found a loophole in the California legal system because I feared that if I turned down the job, I, you know, I was going to miss out on this amazing opportunity. So I found a loophole that if I took essentially summer school while I worked full time and I augmented my legal education with these classes, that I could actually appear in court and function under the supervision of an attorney. So at my first year, I was actually already appearing in court on incredible hearings. And of course, you know, who knew where Kamala Harris was going to go? And she was really aggressively going after a lot of very high profile cases. And so she received a grant to open cold hit cases. And as sort of the expert in admitting this cold hit evidence, ironically, at the time, with no real legal experience, uh, she brought me on the cold hit team to work with uh, within this grant. And so we got to open cases that were over 30 years old. We had a case involving the Night Stalker that they had never attributed to him. I mean, it was it was so amazing. It was like being in an episode of or the movie Dirty Harry, where I was opening these old boxes that hadn't had any air for decades. And the evidence was all on handwritten notes and, you know, from secretaries that were like, you know, woman in a green hat came to see you. I mean, it was, it was so cool. And I was fascinated by this idea that, you know, detectives who had no idea if this evidence would ever be useful, evidence that has DNA, they collected it anyway, hoping that one day there would be this science that could sort of literally open open the shadows, like open the grave. 
And I was a part of opening up all of this stuff. So I accelerated very quickly in my career, which was exciting. Working for Kamala Harris, she was a really tough boss, but she was going places. I mean, I had no idea she was going to be vice president, but she actually very much instituted a ton of policies that were revolutionary at the time, and they were compelling to be part of. I mean, she wanted to find alternative resolutions to drug abuse and drug sales and things that don't really need to be in jail. This was well before that movement was discussed on a national political level um, and considered sort of commonplace. I mean, she was really ahead of the game. And so we were part of that. And we were part of her really believing in us. And I think that that, um, for somebody who wants to go somewhere, they want to build a team they believe in, right? And we were part of that team. So it was amazing. Is there any legal skills, you know, that underpin some of the work that you do today that you think, I'm really glad I worked in that office and opened those cold cases because now when I'm trying to solve climate change, I have the skill set for it. Ironically, I spend a ton of time doing legal work and I'm actually, as we're talking, I am... (laughs) surrounded by papers because I'm actually in the middle of writing a legal motion. I will tell you, I say this probably on a daily basis to the annoyance, great annoyance of my husband, that I think my law degree was 500 times more valuable than a business degree ever would have been. And I mean that in my personal life and I mean that in my professional life because, I mean, legal things cover every aspect of our life from taxes to an agreement, a contract for landscaping services. I mean, anything. And what I've learned is that most people don't speak the language because they didn't go to law school and they have to rely on somebody else that they don't know to interpret it in their best interest. You're having this amazing career And then your dad got sick and you ended up going home to the vineyard. And I'd love to hear, what was that like to make that decision to stop doing one thing and really do something for the family? And as it's turned out, for the county, for the region, and for wine. It was definitely the hardest decision in so many ways that I've ever had to make. Because on the one hand, I had this extraordinarily exciting career that I was very passionate about, that I worked very hard to achieve. And I had almost, you know, I'd made it in so many ways. I got to the impossible. And it felt like it was being cut short because I wasn't really able to go as far as I had envisioned being able to go. And I wasn't done with it. You know, I think a lot of us make career changes when we're ready to move on. I think career changes are great. And I think it's fabulous that our generations have more flexibility to do that. On the other hand, I just, I didn't, I wasn't there. And I did not see this coming from 8 million miles away. Not because I didn't think at some point I might transition to some iteration of the family business, but my father was is extraordinarily healthy. He had a random fluke health condition that rendered him, one, to need extraordinary medical care and in-home care from me as his only living relative, but then also um, disabled him from really 
operating the business. And at that point, I also didn't really know what I was walking into. And so the business my father ran wasn't necessarily my personal passion. And I had this incredible feeling of guilt and obligation that if I didn't give it a try, I would never know whether I liked it or not. But I would also sort of be upending this legacy that my father really cared about. And he never said, I need you to do this because otherwise my dreams will not be fulfilled. But I think it's difficult when you're, especially as an only child, there wasn't really anyone else to do it with me or to say, hey, at least you can carry this on and we're not, as a family, going to lose this history and legacy. So I kind of felt like I didn't have a chance, a choice, really. What was he doing at the time um, that was less of interest to you? I would say that my father's primary interest, really, was farming. And he didn't necessarily want to build a wine brand. He didn't have that much interest in exploring the lifestyle components of Napa Valley. He was very passionate about wine, but not making his own wine necessarily and not selling his own wine. And he became passionate about wine because of living in Napa Valley, but not because he grew up around wine or he's an idiot savant when it comes to tasting and he has no formal <laughs> training. I know. I mean, he's an incredibly knowledgeable uh, winemaker. And, you know, I personally love the farming now. Ironically, that is probably my favorite part as well. But at the time, I really wanted to share what we did with other people and introduce people to the 360 degree view of the Napa lifestyle, which meant building a brand, finding a way to provide hospitality, incorporating wine into fabulous restaurants and introducing it to chefs who could then create the full picture. With that, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to hear more from Lindsay and the extraordinary work that she's doing in terms of climate change, the community, family vineyards in Napa, and smoke and fire. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Wisconsin Cheese. There's a reason when you think of Wisconsin, you think cheese. Cheese is a huge part of Wisconsin's history and future. In Wisconsin, the state of cheese, the tradition of cheesemaking excellence began 180 years ago, before Wisconsin was recognized as a state. Immigrants traveled to settle in this lush green hills of Wisconsin, bringing their cheesemaking traditions with them. These storied skills combined with the freshest milk available created a cheesemaking culture that is uniquely Wisconsin. Wisconsin's 1,200 cheesemakers, many of whom are third and fourth generation, continue to pass on old world traditions while adopting modern innovations in cheesemaking craftsmanship. Find your next favorite cheese at wisconsincheese.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Speaking Broadly. This is Dana Cowan, and my guest is Lindsay Hoops. So, 
Lindsay, you took on this family business, and I love, of course, your vision for it, because partly it aligns with everything I believed in at Food and Wine, which is that um, food and wine are at the center of life, and everything can radiate out from that. Great meals, great experiences, great people, uh, travel, and I really admire what you've built there. I'd love to hear a little bit about some of the specific projects that you've been working on. I'm really fascinated by your Napa cognac. So perhaps we could just start there and what your initiative has been around really looking around and saying, no, these fires are not going away. Absolutely. And I appreciate you asking the question. I definitely would say that that is probably one of, although not the only climate change related project that I've been working on. It is definitely pretty controversial, and I'm happy to talk about that as well. But essentially, as winemakers, we have one harvest. So some crops are very generous in that you can plant them throughout the year and you can harvest them in succession. But grapes produce one harvest annually. And if you lose your harvest annually, then you essentially have no revenue stream. And so certainly fire can burn down facilities and fire can burn down vineyards. But the bigger threat is actually the smoke taint. The ambient environment impacts the flavor of what is grown there. Like all of us, toxins get into our skin. I think we understand that. It's the same thing with fruit because when we grow grapes, the smoke can actually get into the grapes through the skin It binds to the sugar, and then once it is converting to alcohol, that puts into motion a chemical potentiality for the smoke to then manifest in what we call the phenols. But if you think about it, it's really the flavor profiles of the grape. So one of the flavor components of the grapes becomes that smoke that it basically sat in for five days, 10 days, whatever. So in 2017, the fires broke out very unexpectedly towards the end of the harvest. And a lot of our colleagues had already picked their grapes, but we were of the few small percentage that didn't actually harvest before the fires hit on some of our vineyards. And so we ended up thinking that if we were able to rush to the vineyards and get everything off the vine, that we might escape the threat of smoke taint. And so we pulled all the grapes off and we actually tested throughout the production process for well over a year and a half and thought we were in the clear. So we not only had all of the investment in our own grapes that we grew, we had the investment in the grapes we purchased from other people, and then we had the investment in making the wine, um, all to find out right before bottling that unfortunately the smoke had manifested And we were not going to be able to sell the wine. And I remember when my dad, we thought he was going to pass away. I remember his sort of one comment of guidance at that time was, remember, it's your name on the bottle. And so if you don't believe in it, you shouldn't sell it because people are always going to remember that you produced something you didn't believe in. And so... That always stuck with me. It always has. And I ended up really thinking I'd lost the farm. And after all the work and energy and time I did to kind of reinvent 
the business into the next generation, I was like, we've just lost millions of dollars worth of inventory. What are we going to do? Because unlike some people in the wine industry, especially in Napa, we actually live from the vineyards um, and our brand. We are entirely family owned. We are a true small business. And that's becoming more and more of a rare breed in Napa. A lot of people love Napa, so it's become a luxury destination and sort of a luxury product, like a yacht. People want their name on a bottle. They buy a winery. Whereas we've actually been here for 40 years, and we like this is how we feed our family. <laughs> so we don't have a backup. I don't have a bank account from a large oil company. This is This is it. And so I remember I had a book junket planned for that following week after we decided we just, we weren't going to be able to use the product. And I, again, entered into the book junket, like, how am I going to pretend like everything is great? How am I going to sell our brand and our winery when I think we're going bankrupt? And so I went to this tastemakers dinner in Kentucky Derby. I decided to go. What could I lose? I put lots of money on the Kentucky Derby and I won, (laughs) believe it or not. Um, I'm not a gambler, but it was, I guess I'm a gambler of sorts in life, but not, not that way. And I remember sitting down across from Marianne Eves, who is the first female master distiller post-prohibition in Kentucky. She doesn't come across as the aggressive bull in a china shop at all. And yet she takes no crap and will just do what she wants to do. So I also remember her kind of talking about the process of joining the team at Castle and Key, and she was talking about her first gin, and she was so passionate about it. That was inspiring, too, because, you know, she's an artist, and she loved and put every sort of ounce of her emotional self into the product that she was putting into the glass, and I was inspired by that. So I joked, I said offhand, I've got a lot of smoky wine. And I used to live in Ireland, so I grew quite a passion for scotch and all things over in that part of the world. There's got to be something we can do. I mean, the quality is really fantastic. And she and I said, well, let's try it out. And ultimately decided that we were able to create for the first time ever a spectacular beverage that came from, it's a brandy, of course, because it is a spirit distilled from grapes, which has been part of the California craft beverage world since the time of the mission system. But we were able to do that for the first time from the world's most expensive grapes, in some cases, out of red wine, which is atypical because in cognac and armagnac, they typically use white grapes. And we were able to harness this like beautifully natural sort of white smokiness that while unpleasant in wine was really pleasant in <laughs> distilled spirits. And of course is, is something that they try to achieve quite often through charring barrels. And, you know, one of the differences of course, between wine is that it is not proofed. So it's a living product and the smoke is uncontrollable when you let the wine sort of continue to evolve And also it changes the viscosity. Whereas when you distill it, you're able to pull out a lot of the impurities while honing in on the flavor profiles that you want to capture. So you have more control as the distiller over the product, even if the, you know, introduced substrate isn't 
ideal or is ideal, but wouldn't be ideal for other things. So it was an amazing lesson. I mean, I've learned all about distillation and sort of taking this product that I knew was like must have some better purpose. We're basically creating the path for an entirely new beverage category in a lot of ways. And brandy is not new. Appellated brandy is not new. You know, you have cognac, you have Armagnac, you have a number of other things, but there aren't any products from California that use Cabernet. And so just like we speak about terroir in wine, terroir influences brandy as well. And so that's why we coined the term Napagnac to sort of introduce this as something that stands apart from just another California brandy. This is something that is uniquely appellated to Napa and something that makes use of Napa's unique attributes, which are, of course, a specialization in Cabernet Sauvignon. I mean, you'd never do, you'd never make this product unless you kind of were given these circumstances because it would be way too expensive. You lose 85% of the volume in distillation. Um, You have to wait many, many years before you can release it. So you make the wine and then you make the the brandy. (laughs) But that's quite, that's such a process. So, and do you only make it when you have tainted, like smoke inhaled grapes? We made it in 2017 with sort of the, vision that that was probably it. But as we all know, now fires have become a much more regular part of the winemaking landscape. And that was really where I said, we should really create the guidelines for how you can make a an incredible product from a bad situation. So it's not, you know, it's not a byproduct. It is literally an intentional now product that is made to capture the benefits vis-a-vis the spirits distillation process of a natural disaster. You mentioned that it was controversial. Can you tell me about that? I um, I really believe that this is going to benefit our community at large because you do have a large population of growers who need to have a way to sell these grapes. And so in my estimation, I think that joining together just as we did to build the Napa brand is important around this product so people understand why it is superior to a brandy from grapes that literally don't make good wine. That's why they have become historically used in brandy. And I approached trade organizations in Napa Valley to get that support. And unfortunately, it sounded like they were very interested initially. And then they decided to expel me from the trade organization for pursuing the trademark of Napagnac. And I am fighting our trademark on the appellated product all over um, in the United States, in the United Kingdom, everywhere where we filed the trademark. So despite the fact that the world tolerates Cognac and Armagnac and Sauvignac and a number of other products ending in ACK that designate an appellated brandy, uh, Napagnac was offensive to the Bureau of Cognac. And so they have somehow compelled uh, the Napa Vintners to expel me from the organization outright. So 
Um, I am standing on the edge of the community when really the intent was to get them to join forces with me so that we could do this together and help brand Napanyak the way we branded Napa Valley. How does that feel? That's your community. You do so much for the community, but that's a big move on their part. That's a hard one to answer. To me, it's, it's further evidence, in my opinion, that if Napa doesn't get some awareness about the need to change, the need to evolve, because we can't hang our laurels on always being able to produce great wine in every vintage now, right? This is an issue that Mother Nature has presented. And so how can we join together as a community to solve that problem? And that's one example. Um, you know, we've been hearing for now five years that Napa doesn't communicate to the next generation of consumers, that, you know, younger consumers, millennials, feel alienated by Napa. And there's a decent reason for that. They don't have a lot of spokespeople, I would say trailblazers, that are representative of that population and are speaking for that community. And by sort of continuing to alienate that voice, I get worried for my community that we are going to live and propel into this self-perpetuating future that we're not paying attention to needing to change, needing to embrace change, needing to work together to understand the industry issues. And we say we do, but we don't. It seems like perhaps not being welcome in that Napa community may indeed be because you have wanted to appellate a Appanyak, but it also could be that your vision and the the core vision of the older generation doesn't really align. I mean, your goal is how do we introduce new people to this place and how do we sustain the place for coming generations? Because it actually can't be sustained as it is either because the people who have been coming to Napa for 20, 30 years that are going to age out and the next generation isn't coming along. You know, there's changes in the land and the climate and the air that really also can't be ignored. But, um, you know, you have to do what you believe in, but it's also quite isolating. It can be, you know, if there aren't enough people who see Napa the way you see Napa or the potential. It's definitely isolating. There is no question. I think, though, that this will benefit the community, whether the people in power think so today or not, and whether or not, you know, a trade organization is in power. And some of that support, you know, comes from you, for example, or comes from, you know, people reading the story and being very inspired by turning a terrible situation into a positive and innovating, I mean, truly in this sort of face of disaster. And this isn't a marketing piece that I made up. This is something I lived, you know, we're There were some dark moments of, oh my God, what am I going to do? I mean, I think that when I hear people impassioned by the saga and the journey that we've been through, I realize that even if my community is blind to it, or even if my community, um, which is small and relatively homogenous and very myopic in a lot of ways, there are people that support it, unknown and known. And there's a large community out there of supporters of entrepreneurs, of women, of a number of innovators that 
maybe at some point have been on the sidelines of their community or what they were doing, but inspire people around the world. And that's a much bigger community than my backyard. I'm curious about the regenerative regenerative work that you're doing. Um, That seems like it's another piece of addressing the changing climate. So if you can tell us about that. Well, one of the things I've really learned just in general in farming, but also in the changes Napa has seen, because when I was growing up, Napa was actually agriculturally very diverse. So grapes, wine grapes seem like the obvious thing to grow today, but that was not the case in so many different generations, actually. And in fact, my father sort of took a leap of faith in planting grapes because they are now, of course, much more profitable. But at the time, nobody really knew whether or not California, let alone Napa, was ever going to sort of justify taking over valuable land um, for a one annual crop that he didn't consume. I mean, you have to then make it into wine. So it's a much lengthier, more expensive process. It doesn't just return income that year, right? So in that process, of course, of Napa really skyrocketing very quickly to essentially one of the two most well-known wine-growing regions in the world, everyone has converted their land to wine grapes, which has then created somewhat of a monocultural system here. Because if you think about regenerative farming, for those who don't understand it, Really, it's not a new concept. It is the sort of identification of the fact that biodiverse regions function much better because they have that biodiversity. So when one crop or plant or animal depletes the ecosystem, there are other crops, plants, animals that tend to return those nutrients that are depleted into the soil. So I got really into this concept because I started to see things change. You know, grapes weren't lasting as long. You see more diseases coming through. Uh, Just diversity in general is difficult to find. And I watched, of course, um, later in this exploration, but The Biggest Little Farm and Kiss the Ground and seeing those movies where you can actually visually see the transformation, I think, is a great place for people to start. But It is a very simple concept. You need everything to balance and balance is great in life and balance is important for our ecosystem. And so regenerative farming is really understanding the role animals play in farming and not necessarily in farming, but in biodiversity because we plants don't live in isolation. They are always living around and alongside farm animals or humans, right? So we have to understand the role that those creatures also play. And animals can eat the produce and then turn it into compost that we can then use to grow more plants. And having the right animals attracting bugs, insects, creating insectiaries, attracting butterflies can then help our plants do better because we're pollinating and other things. So I've been basically creating a regenerative farm that is my very little version of The Biggest Little Farm. It's the littlest little farm. But <laughs> we we wanted to, you know, I started rescuing um, farm animals and we have them out exploring in the vineyards and they help us till the land. They help us create compost. We feed them from all the leftovers. So we have 
no low waste of all of our greenery that comes around, of course, appropriate for them to eat. And people can actually see that it's important for all of these pieces to work together. We've also seen an incredible jump in the health of all of our crops. Our grapes are doing phenomenally well, whereas when we purchased this new property four years ago, they were not. And we thought we would have to do a replant. And instead of replanting, we've been able to really rehab the area. And so what are some of the plants that are beneficial to grapes and, you know, take care of some of the (laughs) the things you don't want? Yeah, well, there are so many. I mean, in California, as one example, you know, we are obviously quite often in a drought condition. And a lot of people also have brought plants to California that do well here, but are not native. And so those two things have created their own unique challenges. We wanted to actually create um, a low water, so drought tolerant ecosystem um, in some cases that also returned the ecosystem back to what was originally here. Because some of these foreign plants will introduce things into the environment that really aren't supposed to be there. And, you know, it doesn't mean that they don't maybe grow well or look beautiful, but they aren't necessarily part of what's supposed to do to be here. So we partnered with the um, CDFA, the California Department of Food and Agriculture, and we created a monarch habitat. So we planted a lot of things that people probably don't know about, but native California um, western redbuds, Uh, Fava beans are a big one. They're actually really nutrient-rich, so we have lots of fava beans all over. Um, We have milkweed, so some native plants. That's a really big component. And then we actually have a huge two-acre organic produce garden. Um, We have a bunch of fruit trees. We have a bunch of vegetables. And the idea is that we have a rotational crop system throughout, and our team gets to eat from that. And it's a nonprofit. It's a 501c3. So people can, you know, donate directly to the animal sanctuary. We get calls now that people know that we're here if they have a farm animal that is displaced because of fires or you name it. And I personally think that at some point we're going to have to re-envision how do we protect the ag preserve and agriculture as the best use of the land, give farmers the ability to make money in addition to their crop, because that's not going to pay the bills, especially not during fire season. And lastly, you know, really capture, I think, enticing people with a broader view of what is Napa. It doesn't need to be singularly wine. So for all those reasons, I think we have to figure out how can we keep true to the goal of maintaining Napa truly an agricultural region while also inviting healthy agricultural tourism. I want to be sure we touch on the the saving the family uh, vineyards because um, I'm interested in the role of family vineyards right now in Napa because so many vineyards have been sold to large conglomerates. So there's such a concentration of power in the hands of a few really big companies. And I'm wondering what that effect is on the people who are like you who are actually making a living off the land that you steward. It's very scary, to be perfectly honest with you, in the sense that, let's face it, I know that there's a market for the land that we have, and so I will never be, you know, wanting for food if I ever had to sell. I mean, I guess there's that security. The problem that I see is that what 
enamors me about Napa is the fact that there was this true authentic heart and soul of Napa, which, you know, represents multi-generational families that have lived in Napa and have shepherded the land through these generations. And I think that that's a really important part of the story. You know, there's room for large corporate entities as well as small family farms because they really service different people in a lot of ways and or they provide different experiences. And I think it's important to see the wine industry from all angles. And if you lose the family farm angle in Napa, I think it becomes a little soulless. And, you know, some of the empirical data I'll throw out there is that, you know, people have a hard time finding housing here, for example, because a lot of the homes are purchased somewhat above what would really be market value as second homes. And my local school, the Yontville School, closed because we don't have really enough year-round residents that have kids. So it's a town that's popular, but nobody lives here. (laughs) And so, you know, I think that from a generational perspective, it's a little bit scary because I don't want to see all of the local residents, the families that live here and have really built the community have to leave, of course, you know. And I think San Francisco, having worked there for a long time, suffered a little bit of that where, you know, San Francisco became so expensive for people who'd been there for generations and generations that they all really had to leave. And then all of a sudden, you have a very transient community that doesn't really get into the political issues. They don't really dive into building and constructing or caring necessarily about the community. They are much more there to fly in, fly out. And you want that too, you know, but I think that that's an important part of keeping Napa also what it is. I also think we have to decrease some barriers to entry so that people can reasonably get into the industry without having multi-millions of dollars from it would have to be some other industry or being a big company, right? And my perfect example of that is you have a lot of children of farm workers, right, who are the most likely generation to want to take that jump from growing grapes to then making wine. They live it. They've grown up around it. Or or even farming other people's grapes to owning their own, right, and farming those. And how do you facilitate making sure that that population that lives here, that's instrumental for our community, stays? Because picture this. It's a little bleak, right? You have a family of farmers who have been really hardworking for the parents' generation. And the kids are like, why would I stay here and just always work for somebody else? And I'm never going to be able to own my own vineyard here. So I'm never going to be able to make that jump. I I see where you're going. I think you'd be an amazing politician. (laughs) You're very articulate on the challenges. And I think obviously in the community that you're in, as witnessed by the trade organization, there are challenges but Napa itself has challenges. Um, I always end the podcast asking my guest to give a shout out to a woman in the industry who they admire, who they think more people need to know about. So that's my last question to you. This was a hard question for me. I did come to a resolution, but I am, I am slightly mortified because there are so many women. I would love to say that, honestly, um, Elena Besser is a huge inspiration to me. Um, I've known her since she was maybe 16 years old, 17, I think. 
And I remember her being so on the cutting edge of digitizing information about food and then converting it into social media at a time where generationally I could not even relate. But she taught me so much about, I think, this world of consumers that I didn't understand and this world of creating a brand of herself around something that she was really passionate about. I mean, she's been a huge inspiration despite the fact that I think I've been sort of an older sister to her so um, in, in different ways. So I've, I've watched her grow up into an incredible, incredible woman, but I've learned so much from her. And I just, I remember being really astounded by how she was able to create something I didn't even understand into a really interesting brand. So I think that's, that's the one I landed on for today, but I, there's so many women who've helped me over the years and, um, I think are doing amazing, amazing things. And, you know, we, we balance a lot as women, you know, kids, husbands who are kids too, you know, it's hard to advocate for ourselves when we're constantly doing a million things for other people. And so, um, women are always an inspiration to me. And so are you. Thank you. Well, I hate to lay out something that is, I'm an inspiration, but um, it's great talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. I love hearing about all of the projects and, Love hearing about your your family story as well. So thank you so much for spending time with me. And for those of you who are listening, you have to make it out to Napa and check out the Oasis and um, Hoops Family Vineyard. And I'll be back with another inspiring guest. This show is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.